The Hamlet Podcast, episode 148. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. We're into the last stretch now as we begin Act 5 of the play. There's still a great deal more to happen in the story, but this is the final act. This first scene, one of the most famous in this play full of famous scenes, takes place in a churchyard. First to appear, according to the stage directions, are two clowns. It's probably worth noting that the word clown here doesn't mean the kind of painted circus entertainer that we've come to recognise and even fear in contemporary popular culture. Shakespeare's plays are full of fools, and there are too many to list, but characters specifically called clowns are rather less common. In fact, the word was relatively new, and was a designation more of a kind of performer than a kind of person. So the stage direction that starts this scene, introducing two clowns, is more of a casting note than any invitation to give us red noses or brightly coloured costumes. Earlier in the play, Hamlet himself had notes for them. And let those that play your clowns speak no more than is set down for them, for there be of them that will make themselves laugh, to set on some quantity of barren spectators to laugh too, though in the meantime some necessary question of the play be then to be considered. That's villainous and shows a most pitiful ambition in the fool that uses it. Clowns and fools in the one speech. Fools appear ten times more frequently than clowns in Shakespeare's plays. Clowns are most often ordinary people, who are smart and can poke holes in the grand behaviours of their social superiors. They can often be a kind of bridge between the audience and the story of a play. As we will see in this scene, Shakespeare manages to transcend this in Hamlet. But of course the prince himself has been aware and pointed out that sometimes clowns can improvise and make up their own jokes and extend them if they want to. But this is certainly the kind of thing that Hamlet frowns upon. Our two clowns here, witty rustics, very different from all the courtly folk we've met inside the castle walls of Elsinore, are grave diggers. They chatter as they work, and we learn what's been going on. We can assume that they've been chatting for a while now, and the first grave digger starts the scene with a new question. Is she to be buried in Christian burial that willfully seeks her own salvation? In the previous scene, Gertrude's description of Ophelia's death made it seem unlikely that she chose to end her own life. But clearly the word is out, and the gravediggers are wondering whether it's appropriate for her to be buried here in the graveyard. Since suicide was considered a very serious sin, people who killed themselves were denied Christian burial, and they had to be buried outside of a graveyard. The dubious circumstances of Ophelia's death will hover over this entire scene. It is possible that Ophelia did end her own life, singing her hymns and hoping to go to God. The gravedigger is wondering if she willfully sought her own salvation. It's quite a nice euphemism for suicide, but it could also be a mistake. Like Dogberry in Much Ado About Nothing, he might be getting his words wrong, and he might have meant damnation instead of salvation. His colleague, the second clown, replies, I tell thee she is, 
and therefore make her grave straight. The crowner hath sat on her and finds it Christian burial. This man has no doubt. He insists that Ophelia is indeed to be buried here in the graveyard and tells the first clown to make her grave immediately. The crowner, or coroner, has sat in judgment of her case and has determined that yes, she is to be given a Christian burial. The first clown is still not convinced. How can that be, unless she drowned herself in her own defence? Self-defence was considered an acceptable justification for murder, but the gravedigger, perhaps ironically, wonders how Ophelia might have drowned herself in self-defence, since either action brings about the same result. Perhaps a little exasperated, his colleague has a short reply. Why, tis found so. It is what it is, and the judge has said that this is the case and that's all there is to it. But the first clown gnaws at his ideas like a dog with a bone. It must be se offendendo, it cannot be else. For here lies the point. If I drown myself wittingly, it argues an act. And an act hath three branches. It is to act, to do, to perform. Argal, she drowned herself wittingly. Here our clown shows a little knowledge of Latin, perhaps gleaned from his years of overhearing funerals and discussions of death. He insists that Ophelia's death must have been say offendendo rather than say defendendo. He's rephrasing it so that it's self-offence rather than self-defence. He can't see how it could possibly be self-defence. Here lies the point, he says. If I drown myself wittingly, consciously, that means that I'm doing it. It argues an act. I'm consciously doing so. An act, or an action, he says, has three branches, three aspects to it. To act, to do, to perform. Ophelia must surely have been active, performing this action. Therefore she drowned herself wittingly. Therefore she probably doesn't deserve Christian burial. The gravedigger graces both ends of his speech with his mangled Latin, here throwing in Argal, his rather dodgy version of ergo, therefore. The second gravedigger starts to argue, nay, but hear you, good man Delver. Delver is another word for an excavator or a digger. He might be about to argue the opposite side of the case, that Ophelia had lost her mind and therefore couldn't do anything wittingly. Or he might merely want to press on and get the job done. It's a moot point either way, because the first clown has more to say. Give me leave. Here lies the water. Good. Here stands the man. Good. If the man go to this water and drown himself, it is, will he, nil he, he goes. Mark you that. But if the water come to him and drown him, he drowns not himself. Argal, he that is not guilty of his own death shortens not his own life. Give me leave, he interrupts. Allow me to explain. He sets himself up a little image of a man and a body of water. Now, he says, if the man goes to the water and drowns himself, then, like it or not, he's responsible because he's doing the going and the drowning. But... If the water comes to the man and drowns him, for whatever reason, the man is not responsible, and he drowns not himself. 
lest we start to think that he's making too much sense, the clown finishes with another argle, therefore, he that is not guilty of his own death shortens not his own life. He that doesn't kill himself, obviously enough, doesn't end his own life. The argument is going to continue, but we'll leave off here and rejoin our two busy clowns in the next episode. For more information on clowns in Shakespeare, and a link to the best book on the subject written by one of my own former teachers, be sure to visit the website, thehamletpodcast.com. Thank you very much, as always, for listening, and I'll speak to you next time.